0: Once again, good evening. Thank you for being here tonight. I want to welcome everybody and all those listening on our podcast channel. Tonight, we're going to be studying the Old Testament book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Joshua chapter 7. If you also, if you use your phone, your tablet, your iPad, that is fine, too. Now, while you're going there, uh, before we jump into this chapter, it would really help if we do a quick recap, uh, especially the last two verses uh, from chapter 6 because it'll really be helpful to understand what's going on and also see where Joshua is going with this uh, part of the book. So first off, in in, uh, Joshua chapter 6, the Israelites had marched around the city of Jericho. Everybody remember that story, especially as a kid, right? If you remember from the story, each day for six days, they marched around the city one time. And on the seventh day, they marched around seven times. And once they completed the seventh time around on the seventh day, Joshua gives the command, Everyone starts, the soldiers start yelling loud, and the walls of Jericho uh, come crashing down. Right? Great story. And the, part, this, the reason this part of the story is important is, let's be honest, how strange it would be to do what the Israelites did. I mean, just think about it. Let me just throw this out there. If you have an army and you're approaching a walled city, no one in their right mind is going to walk up to that city and then proceed over the next six days to just walk around it with your entire army once a day. And then on the seventh day, do that seven times. You've now wasted one week, a week's worth of food and water for all your soldiers. You've given the enemies plenty of time to scope you out and see exactly what you have and what you don't have. Right? So it's a really interesting case. Because what actually what a lot of uh, armies at, the, at that time would do, and you, there's still evidence of this in some, uh, some of the cities, is they would actually build a ramp Up the wall, they grab grab a whole bunch of rock and uh, gravel and make a ramp. And they may sometimes make it wide enough so chariots could actually go up that ramp. Pack animals, so you can quickly go over the wall, do what you came to do, right? So for the Israelites to take that much time, over a week's period, do what they did to march around the city again, wasting all that food, water, all that time, means God gave them a very specific command. One that no one else would do, and then they followed that command without question. They really did, right? Again, let's be honest, that's a terrible battle strategy. You've just shown the opposing army exactly what you're made of. But regardless, the Israelites do exactly what they're commanded to do. They do it. On the seventh day, they go around seven times, the city walls come down. But just before, just before the army rushes into the city of Jericho... Joshua gives them two commands. This is going to be important. I need you to everybody paying attention. Two commands. The first one is do not harm Rahab or her family. Remember that one? Do not leave her alone. And number two, we're going to read together because it's very important for today. So this is going to be Joshua 6, 18 and 19. This is with the second command. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So let's pretend we're the army. Get ready to rush in. What are the two rules? What thing can't we do? Stay away from Rahab and her family. And number two, don't touch the gold, the silver, all that stuff, right? Otherwise what? You're going to bring destruction. That's a pretty heavy duty word, but that's what's in there, right? Pretty clear. Anybody have any questions before we go rushing in? All right. Now, if we're all in that army we're about to go rushing in, does anyone feel like trying to take that kind of stuff and see what happens? No, right? Here's the thing. Do you think the Israelites, every one of them, obeyed that command? No. No. So now let's start Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, and let's see what happened. This is what brings us up to t- today. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So this would be entirely appropriate to do right now. Oi, right? Oi, ve- <laughs> perfect. So obviously Achan disobeyed God, and he broke the command that was very, very clear of just simply don't take those things. Right? Now, why this is a big deal, and we've seen this numerous times with the Israelites already, it has everything to do with faith, trust, and simply following God's commands, okay? Everything about their existence from the time they were in slavery up till now is about following God's commands, simply having faith in Him, trusting in Him, right? Right? All that stuff mattered in the desert, being being freed from slavery, and now that they're in the promised land, all that hinges on those things. They need to trust God. They just need to have faith and follow his commands. Every time they fail in those things, guess what happens? Something bad happens to them. Right? There's real consequences. And all throughout their story, we see God time and time again telling them to have trust, to have faith, and simply obey. Do that, and you will do well. You're going to do great. Don't do that, and there's going to be problems. There's going to be consequences. So it's very clear. It's very repetitive. It's there. And by Achen, this man taking these devoted things, shows he's actually breaking all of those commands, all of those. Joshua had told them not to touch the riches of Jericho because it was devoted to the Lord, right? All, and if all the Israelites followed that command, it meant they were giving the first fruits to God. right. That's what it was. It meant they understood that everything that they had already, including their freedom in the promised land, was given to them by God. Right. And it showed that they held God in high regard. So it meant they also trusted him. They knew that God had provided for them thus far. So there was no need to rush in and take a little extra gold just in case. Right. Tuck it away in the bank account for a rainy day. Don't need to do that. God's brought you this far. He's giving you this land. Look at what just happened with the walls of Jericho. Just trust God, right? So, and everything was supposed to be left. It belonged to God, so it would go into the temple treasury. The temple treasury, right? So, it would be no different here than if anybody walking past the offering box in the hallway, seeing the door open and going, "Uh, right? Obviously, that's not good. You can't claim you didn't know that you weren't supposed to do that, right? Right? So now the story goes, the Israelites, they've taken the city of Jericho, right? Achen helped himself to some of the spoils, and now they're ready to move on to the next battle. Let's start reading at verse 2, verse 2 to 5. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho, Jericho excuse me, to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel. And he told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, listen. We don't need the whole army to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it. Do not weary. Don't waste the whole army. They don't need to go for just the few people that are there. So about 3,000 went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai. They They killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. And at this, the hearts of the people, meaning the Israelites, melted in fear and became like water. Now, we don't know exactly how long it was from when they took the city of Jericho till they went to Ai. It could have been a couple of days. It could have been a couple weeks. We don't really know. But we know they did. And you're going to notice Achan taking the spoils, the stuff that he found in Jericho hadn't been noticed by anyone yet. Not by the people, not by Joshua. God knew about it. He's the only one. All right, so now Joshua sends out spies to this small city called Ai, and it appears that it's very small, the army's very weak, it's not a big concern. So they decide not to waste time and send the whole army. Just send a small group, they can take the city, it'll be fine. So they do this, and of course they get routed, unfortunately, and 36 soldiers die. Now 36 may not sound like a large number, does it? But do you know how many soldiers they lost taking Jericho? None. Jericho was a big city. It was a walled city. It was wealthy, right? And because of this defeat, verse 5 tells us the hearts of the Israelites, hearts of the people melted in fear, and they became like water. So, like what we said a few minutes ago, God wanted three things from the Israelites. He wanted faith, he wanted trust, and for them to follow his commands. And because of what just happened at AI, the text tells us all the people were overcome with fear. Their heart's melted. What are they losing? Faith. They're losing trust. They're getting very scared, right? And this is significant because if their hearts melt in fear and they become like water, do they still have strong faith and trust in God? At best, it's this. At best, right? It just is, right? When they fall prey to their fears, they're not holding steadfast to God. They're not just simply trusting him. And anything, if anything, let's be honest, it shows they still have issues, And you can't really blame them, right? As a nation, they're not all the way there yet. They're doing well. They have some ups and downs. But no matter what, they're not all the way there. And what's going on is they're relying on their feelings, how things feel, how things appear, right? And to a degree that has a little bit of the prosperity movement in it that we see today, where people think, You know, God loves me and all is well. Everything's great as long as I perceive things are going well, the stuff that needs to go well, then I feel like God loves me. But as soon as something doesn't happen, God doesn't love me. Then there's problems, right? But we know God does not work like that all the time. He does allow us to go through difficult situations. He allows us to do that to build us up. He does that to make us better followers, to trust in him more, right? And the people of Israel had felt unbeatable at this point. They had a ton of confidence. Look what just happened at Jericho. Look, it's amazing, right? All this confidence, the Lord was with them, with or, or so they thought. But because of what Achan did, now they quickly lose faith. Everything feels like it's crumbling, right? And uh, so this is what happened next. Let's go to Joshua uh, chapter seven, verse six to seven. It says, then Joshua, this is very dramatic, tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. So he laid on the ground before the ark for hours. The elders of the Israel did the same when they sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. So, what he means is listen, maybe we should have just never come here. And better if we stayed over there. Right? And so, things are looking bad, but really, what Joshua is saying here, it means a couple things. Number one, a loss to a city like AI, which is small and insignificant and no one else is scared of them, doesn't just happen. If we lost to them, we lost for a reason. This is not a big city, they don't really have an army, it was supposed to be a breeze, so why did it fail? Joshua is crying out because he fears God has now left them and removed his protective hand from them, right? He's no longer gonna bless them and what just happened in Jericho? It's never gonna happen again. He's just, everything's falling apart. God is the one who did all the plagues in Egypt, who, who rescued them from slavery, parted the Red Seas, fed them in the desert part of the Jordan River, brought down the walls of Jericho. All those were miracles and they happened because of God. They knew this. God made this happen because of his mighty hand. And if he is no longer with them, perhaps everything's lost. Perhaps we're done. What's left to do? We don't have a home. We were just slaves in Egypt. The only thing left for us is to go try to survive in the desert on our own. And that, this is what he's thinking. This is, you know, he's going through in his mind. This is potentially huge. And it's not just that they got their feelings hurt because they got whipped by a small town. Again, he thinks everything is potentially lost. They always had a purpose. When God freed them, this wasn't an accident. They weren't some random nation. He freed them. He was their God. They were their people. Look what happened. And what if it's all gone, right? Now they may not have a purpose. God wasn't with them. If he left, that's it. There's no more promised land. So he's afraid the wheels have come off and they're just going to start careening down the road. And you can't blame him in a way. But at the same time, if we look back at the book of Exodus, the Israelites have had other reactions that are actually quite similar. And we're going to look at two, right? Because they, they kind of paint this picture of what happens sometimes. The first one is going to be Exodus 14, verses 11 to 2 and when they said to Moses this is the Israelites talking they said to Moses was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die what have you done to us what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt didn't we say to you in Egypt leave us alone let us serve the egyptians it would have been better uh, been better for us to serve the egyptians than to die in the desert now what's happened here is god just freed them from slavery they just got free from slavery they're looking at one side as the Red Sea is in front of them, and the Israelite army just left the city and is coming to get them. So now they're like, ah, and they're saying, it would have been better to be at slaves. We were so much better in slaves. But what does God do? He parts the Red Sea. They go across on dry land. The whole Egyptian army drowns. He saves them, right? But what they were looking around, their circumstances, and they were totally losing faith. Let's look at another time. It's in Exodus 16. Exodus 16, verses 2 and 3. In the desert, the whole community all of them, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. This, is, this one's always stuck out to me. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Talk about slavery. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now what's happening is once again, they're looking around at their circumstances. They don't like what they see. And they're very much looking back with rose-colored glasses at their lives when they were slaves. And oh, how great it was. There were pots of meat everywhere. We had all kinds of stuff to eat. And you brought us out here to starve us, Moses. Shame. Obviously, that is not true. But that's what they, they're feeling. And let's be honest, they're just as human as us, right? They have weaknesses. We can't blame them for showing weaknesses and getting scared. We do that sometimes, right? It happens. no, no. But what happens also, it highlights how quickly us humans can experience difficulty and then immediately abandon God. Just throw everything away. And to go even further sometimes, we blame him as though it's his fault. Anyone ever experience this or see this happening? So this brings us to our point for today, and this is what it is. We have to simply trust God in order to follow his plans for us. You have to. Now, it sounds like an easy thing to do, especially when things are going well, but when it gets tough and times are difficult, this can be hard to do sometimes. We can be just like the Israelites, right? We like to think that if we follow God, nothing bad is ever going to happen to us. We've got to stop thinking that way. Following God, I've said this before, and this, this is kind of how I describe it to people at work. When we talk about religion, talk about God. Finding God, believing in Jesus Christ, is not like suddenly finding a long-lost uncle who now bequeathed you a lot of money and you never have to work again. That is not how it is. This world is a fallen world. We are saved by God. God has a plan for us, and then he wants us to send us out into that world to help save others, right? Again, this world is fallen and bad things happen, sometimes around us, sometimes to us. But we're still sent out into this world with a purpose just like the Israelites were. They were being sent into the promised land for a purpose. And we have to trust God in order to follow his plans for us. And that means having faith in all situations. You know, being a Christ follower, is actually kind of like being a, like a fireman or working in healthcare sometimes. You do those jobs knowing you're going to see difficult things. You're going to be called. You're going to be sent into difficult situations. You're going to be present when life takes a bad turn but you're there to help people go through those situations. And that's what happens with, as followers of Jesus Christ. We are sent into this world to help take the message of hope and forgiveness to people who've never heard that. Now, let's switch gears for a moment. And let's look at some stories in the New Testament and see how Christ followers really did a good job. We've got the Israelites over here turning around and looking at slavery and how great it was and all the meat they had to eat. And now let's look at a couple of instances where the disciples in particular did a really, really good job even when they were being persecuted and had a hard time. Uh, The first one, let's look at Acts chapter 5, verses 40 to 42. It says, They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, this is really amazing because because the disciples, grown men, were whipped publicly for talking about Jesus Christ. They had not committed a crime other than simply teaching about Jesus, and the religious leaders didn't like that. So they had them flogged, that was the word. In the biblical time, floggings were done with a, a, a whip made of leather, and uh, it always ha- usually happened on the upper body of the offender. Usually the one-third of the lashes went on the front chest, then they turned the person around and did the other two-thirds. And mostly, it was about- they usually stopped at 39 lashes. The absolute limit was 40. And just to be safe, in case you got going, they didn't want to accidentally hit 41. So they tried to stop at 39. That way, if you miscounted, you're okay. It was a big thing, right? And uh, usually the person doing the whipping would stand above and behind the person. So they came down and they got more momentum, more angle, more of a, a hit. And there's also this interesting caveat that if the person being whipped, if they died during the flogging, as long as it was 40 and under that they were whipped, the executioner was not held liable. If they went 41 and over, they were held liable for killing the person. Now, the reason I bring that up is to make sure that we understand that flogging was not some easy, small thing. They were literally being whipped. People did die during that. But as long as the executioner or the person whipping stayed at 40 or under, they were never held liable for that death. And these disciples, this is what happened to them. They were whipped in that manner for talking about Jesus Christ. And then they went out and did more of it. And they rejoiced that it happened to them, that they were able to suffer because of Jesus. I mean, you talk about faith. They went out and they did more of it. It's was just a crazy. And there's this other fantastic story. And I, I really love this. It's always meant a lot to me. It involves Paul and Silas, and it's in Acts chapter 16. The story goes, Paul and Silas, they had been arrested. And the text actually tells us they were locked in changed, and put in the deepest part of the cell, deepest part of the jail, right, where it's dark. The, the, they'll get totally get left in there. And about midnight, it's late, it's dark, him and, Paul and Silas start singing hymns. They start singing. They're praising, just like we were just singing. All I have is a hallelujah. And then the text says, and the other inmates were listening to. what's beautiful is that, the reason I like to share that story is they were persecuted. They were actually locked up, didn't know when they were going to get out, and they made sure to praise God. And other people got to hear them do that. That's what faith is. That's trusting in God, trusting in God's plan for you. They had no idea what was going to happen. What's so cool is 2,000 years later, we're talking about that. It's helping us in our faith. Can you imagine what was going through their minds, Paul and Silas right then? Can you imagine how much even better they would feel knowing 2,000 years later people on the other side of earth would hear about the songs that they sing? And how much better that night would have even been. It was already great. It was going to get better knowing that. See, that's a powerful story. I love that. And the reason I like to share those two stories, again, is to demonstrate what real faith is. True faith doesn't fall apart. It doesn't melt away and turn to water When things don't go well, because things won't always go well. This is really important because each one of us needs to look at our own faith and where we're at and compare to what we see in the Bible when things don't go good and when things do go good. We should use the stories as a mirror. We should read those stories and see how we can improve as well. So in a way, you could say the the Israelites, what we're reading about, represent how we not do so well, how we don't do so well on some days. And the story of the apostles represent how we could do good too. We just need to follow God and trust in Him. And over time, we will improve, especially as we go go through ups and downs and learn to trust in God. Again, just like comparing ourselves to Israel and the, the disciples, we should always learn through that. And this example, the stuff that we read, shows how the early church stayed strong, how it thrived even during difficult times. They actually celebrated, I think this is crazy, celebrated when they were persecuted for preaching about Jesus Christ, and that's where the goalpost should be when it comes to faith. Now, let's go back to the story of Joshua and Israelites. And what we're seeing here, this whole story, is God building them up in their faith, brick brick by brick, day by day, month by month. They're going to have ups and downs. This is going to be one of them. Sometimes they do good, sometimes not. But each time, the goal is for them to move farther in their faith, to come together as a nation, to, to really achieve the plans that God has laid out for them. So now what we're going to see Joshua do, he's going to turn back to God. And he's going to start asking questions. What went wrong? What happened? What do we need to do differently, right? He's in freak-out mode, and he's going to start pulling it together and go, okay, now God, talk to me. What happened? Right? Which is where he should be. So let's go to Joshua 7, verses 8 and 9. He says, pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed? By its enemies. The Canaanites and and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and they will wipe out your name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? So, this is a great question from Joshua, right? And it shows he's not just concerned for himself and his people, he's also concerned about God's name, right? God's name means something to him, and the nations around them are learning about God with everything that he's doing. And with what just happened, especially if it continues to fall apart, it may affect God's name among the other nations. He's not going to look very powerful. He's going to look like he has a mighty hand. It might make him look like he's less in control. So while God is not at fault, Joshua, can, he can still see the bigger picture of what's going on and what the world, what God wants the rest of the world to see. God's using them to send a message to the world that he's the one true God. Now, here is where God is going to get real with Joshua and tell him what happened and what needs to be fixed. Verses 10 and 11. The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. And they have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. So obviously this is heavy duty, but God says, first off, get up. Stop begging. Get up. That's not the problem. Joshua does not need to convince God to turn back to Israel because he's not the one who left them. Israel left him. They disobeyed him. They turned their back's on the covenant. So what we're seeing is God telling Joshua they need to get back in line. They need to get back in a right relationship with Him. They left, they stole, they lied, they stole, they hid. They must come clean. They have to own up to it. There's gonna be no way to get around what was done. They're gonna to have to physically remove the stuff that they stole. They can't just say, oopsies, mulligan on us. This is a big deal. The devoted, the devoted things must be removed. Otherwise, God will not be with them. This will stop today. He, the enemies will defeat them. Again, they're not going to be defeated because of a bad battle strategy, but because God has left them. They can't fool God. So this is what God tells them. He says this in verse 13. He says, go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord said, the God of Israel says, there there are devoted things among you. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. So what's special in this and what God's telling them to do, it indicates this isn't just some random nation. They are his people. They have a very specific purpose. There's always been a greater purpose in what's going on. So first God, God tells them to consecrate themselves. And consecrate means to separate out for a special purpose. I mean, that's what this is. It's a great word for what's going on here. They're not just there to take the promised land. That's certainly part of it. But they're a nation, and he has plans for this nation. We know the Messiah will come through this nation. Right? And when the people, when they took the devoted things that they basically stole from Jericho, they broke from their role as his people. They stepped out of their purpose. They decided to only think of themselves and not have faith and trust in God. Now, not all of the people did this, but as long as just one did, they are guilty as a nation. So now to atone for this, to make things right, God says they have to consecrate themselves and remove those stolen arguments. Now, what's great is we here tonight are not in the same situation. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, everything is different. Our sins have been washed away. We're not under the same covenant. Most importantly, again, our sin has been removed. With Jesus' death, his resurrection, the biggest problem has been fixed. Once we come to believe in Jesus Christ, we're saved. We're consecrated in a way. We're made new. And as long as we leave our life of sin, we are good. We're in good standing. But now as the story progresses, we're going to see God deal with this problem in a big and final way. And let's read, let's read what the people are told now in verse 15. This is heavy duty. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Exclamation point. So the punishment is going to be severe, and there's just no way to get around. You know, the text says what it says. God said what he said. But to make sure we understand why this is so serious, we need to understand the covenant between God and the people. The entire crux of this covenant as a promise between God and his people. It's based on relationship and faith. God was going to be their God. He was going to dwell among them. He was their salvation. They were going to grow and become a strong nation and be this light to the rest of the world. He was going to do amazing things through them. He'd already done another number of things. He's going to do more with his mighty hands. That was his role. The role of the people were to be his people, to follow his commands, to listen to him, to stay close to him, to lean on him and trust him. So the reason this punishment is going to be so severe is because the person who did these things knowingly broke all those commands, all the rules, the entire relationship. They didn't say, well, listen, I just don't want to be in this nation anymore, and went off on their own. They stayed. They knew what was going on. They knew it was wrong. They knowingly broke broke the covenant. They knew the blessings. They knew the risks. They knew the punishment, and yet they, they did. They still obeyed a direct order. They took the valuables, they stole them, they hid them in their tent. So this was not an accident. They can't claim they didn't understand the severity. They simply wanted to take what they wanted to take and hope they got away with it. So the story goes that the next day, Joshua called all the people together. He singled out the tribe of Judah. He then singled out the clan of the Zarahites from within the tribe of Judah. He then separated out the Zerahites by family and singled out the family of Zimri. He then called each family from of each uh, household within the families of Zimri and separated them out and eventually came to the family that was headed by this man named Achan. Then Joshua stands before Achan and he simply says, tell me what you have done. What did you do? Now, as we read Achan's response, you're going to see he knows exactly what he did. He, he he wasn't accused of anything yet. Let's look at his words and the order of what he says. It's in verses 20 to 21. Achen replied, it's true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. So he knows what the sin is. That's what he's done first. This is what I've done. When I saw the plunder, When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them, and I took them. And they are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So he says it's true. It's true. I sinned. His biggest crime is sinning against God. He didn't sin against Joshua or the Israelites, but he sinned against God himself, which means he understood the law. He understood the command. He understood God's role and his role. He simply chose to do whatever he wanted anyway. And he knows he can't claim ignorance. He next said, he coveted. Notice that word covet. He knew there was something out there that wasn't his. He wanted it. He coveted the beautiful robe, the bag of silver, the bar of gold. He coveted those things. He stole those things. And then by his own words, he hid those things in his tent. Those are not things people do when they're honest, when they've earned what they have. People who covet, steal, and hide are thieves. That's what he is. He's a thief. So Joshua sends people to his tent. They find everything he just said exactly how he described it. The robe, the silver, and the gold. And the story goes, they then take Achan, his family, all his animals, his tent, everything he owned. They, They took it all to the valley of Achor. And then this is what happened in verses 25 to 26. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you this day. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Aachen they heaped a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. So this is obviously a terrible ending to a sad story. But we should also ask this question. Was it fair to treat Aachen's family the same way that Aachen was treated? Well, first we have to remember that when Aachen stole the valuables, he intentionally kept it from everybody including Joshua, and due to his greed, 36 soldiers died. 36 soldiers lost their lives that did not have to die. Did Akin repent and own up to what happened because those 36 soldiers died? No, he did not. He stayed quiet. He did not know if they, when they would go back to Ai. They may go back the next day and more men would die. He did not say anything. He didn't care. And as far as his family getting the sentence, um, it's extremely, extremely unlikely they had no way of knowing what he did. It's actually thought that they actually helped him. They likely would have helped him bury those things in the tent. The tent is not like the size of this church. It was small as a tent. So to have all those things would have been known. So they likely held or helped him do that. They too kept quiet when 36 soldiers died. They too kept quiet, not knowing when they would go back to take the city of Ai. They had time to own up. None of them did. So when you take all that into consideration, it's simply bigger than Aachen taking a few small things. It had a huge impact on the nation. He knew that. And he only owned up when he got caught. So the question now is, well, how does this apply to us? Because there are stories in the Bible that are wonderful and they're warm. This is very much not one of those. It's not. So what can we learn from this? Well, there's stories like this in the Bible to help us give an, get an accurate description depiction, probably a better word, of God. He is holy, he is mighty, he is powerful. He hates sin. He calls us, just like the Israelites, out of a life of sin. And he does hold his people accountable. That's why the Bible on numerous occasions talks about fearing God. And I don't always like that word fear. I think healthy respect is a better way. God doesn't want us to be scared of him, but he he wants us to understand how bad sin is, how dangerous it is, how powerful he is. He wants us to understand what sin does. In this case, it cost 36 innocent soldiers their lives just for a small bag of gold and a ro- and a robe. That's not fair to their families. So to be in a relationship with God's means we do have to let go of our sinful ways. We need to leave our old ways. Now the best, the best part of a story like this is how we have a different relationship now with God because of Jesus Christ. Because of him and what he did on the cross, we are saved. All we have to believe, do is believe in Jesus Christ, ask for forgiveness, and we are forgiven. We're no longer under the old covenant or the law. We can celebrate. So tonight, I want to do things just a little differently. If I can, I'd like to invite Rachel up. As we end tonight, I want to end with a prayer. And I want to thank God for all the blessings we have because we are a blessed people. We live in one of the richest countries in the world. We have a beautiful air-conditioned church, freshly painted, right? Looks nice. We have so much to be thankful for. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to first, I'm going to start with a prayer for all of us. And then I want to pause during that prayer and give each of you time to pray quietly to yourself anything you would like to pray for, things that you might be thankful for, anything you might want to ask God for, that we can do that together here in a church. And I'll bring us all back together at the end, and let's finish together with a prayer. So if we would at this time, let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, we come to you tonight as your people. It's our choice, and we choose to be your people. We recognize you for who you are, and you are our God. You created us, you raised us up, and you have blessed us in so many ways, and we want to thank you. We thank you for the stories in the Bible, the good ones, the difficult ones, because all of them we can learn something from. We get to learn from what our Israelite brothers and sisters did well and what they did not do well. We are who we are because of the work that you did through them, the work you started. We thank you, Father, for the love and the patience that you showed to them and also to us. Now, Father, once again, We thank you for everything that you have done for each one of us. We're truly blessed for the work that you did through Jesus Christ, the work you did through the Israelites. Father, most of all, we just simply want to thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to save us. It's because of him we are saved. We have every reason to celebrate, to be joyful, and to sing hallelujah. And it's in his name we ask all these things. Amen.